you know, it wouldn't be appropriate to sort of bear all. So there's just misunderstanding upon misunderstanding and taking one comment the wrong way and then nursing a grudge for months or years. It's difficult because each of them had like such a loyalty um, to their to their mothers. Andrew had to care for Mrs. Carnegie because she said so. And Louise had to care for her mother because she had to. Louise's mother was an invalid. And so both of them understood what it was to have an obligation. And both of them had such a sense of honor that they couldn't imagine not fulfilling those obligations. So another sticking point, which was a little bit unexpected, was that Andrew is already very wealthy and successful. And Louise finds this a turnoff of sorts because she had this romantic ideal that she was going to marry a poor but promising young man and she would help him rise into the world and together, you know, they would take everything on. And she felt that Andrew didn't need her. And that was really kind of hard for her. So, you know, it's ironic that Andrew was that young man earlier in life. But, you know, as it happens, he and... I guess his mother managed to do it. So, right. you know, there was that. Right. So he's met Louise. He is living in New York. He's often taking the 15-hour train back to Pittsburgh to kind of meet with his partners and whatnot. He's really trying to get smarter and more cultured <laughs> and kind of hobnob with these. Well, one thing also that is happening is you've mm-hmm. got the old money, the old New York money, absolutely rejecting and refusing to, he can't get into the, what is it called? The 300, isn't it? The 300. He can't get in. They right. will not, he's locked out. Um, along with the Vanderbilts, along with, you know, the Astros. Anyone, right. He's locked out of the, the top tier of New York society. So he's kind of going into these salons with kind of the, uh, the far left, really, with <laughs> the people of, who will have him. Yeah, with the bohos, with the free thinkers, with the socialists. You know, he's sort of hanging with them. He probably thinks that's where the future lies. You know, knowing oh, Andrew, he does. He does thing. think that. He actually is um, interviewed in a labor magazine as saying, "I'm a socialist." <laughs> And it is the best idea I've ever come across, and it will someday take over the world. So. He's not right about everything. <laughs> oh, dear. But he does. He believes that this is the way of the future. So he's trying to create this other non-business related world in New York. At the same time, in Pittsburgh, he actually, there's this panic. In 1873, there's a, it's a depression, which we wouldn't know about. We don't remember the depression of 1873, but there is one. His companies ride it out. He gets a lot of recommendations to shut down the plants, stop stop creating rails. But he decides, no, he's just going to f- push through and he's going to keep on making the rails. And he has enough money to sort of support that during the panic. Not many people do. And this is the point at which he and his old mentor, Tom Scott, have to part ways because Thomas Scott, as an investor, has gotten a little bit wilder than Andrew was. And Andrew's considered kind of a risky case. Mm -hmm. And in Pittsburgh, a lot of the bankers don't trust Andrew because they think he's so risky. But what's happened is Tom Scott has borrowed heavily to invest in these railroads that are all now failing because of this depression. Right. 
Scott comes to Andrew and says, and Andrew has also invested $250,000 into this particular railroad that was failing. And he pays Scott that money. He He's kind of done with, he's out of it. He, he has no more investment in this company. Mm-hmm. But Scott asks him to endorse Scott's loans. And mm-hmm. Andrew says, no, I'm not, I can't endorse your loans. I would be then taking on this risk. I would be taking on the risk, which is almost a sure failure. Right. And that would mean if I have a failure, that means the banks will look at me and believe that I am a risk taker Mm -hmm. and they will no longer treat me with respect and I won't be able to run my business. Mm -hmm. So in order to sort of keep the Carnegie Steel making going, he tells Scott no, I'm not going to do this. And it's this big rift. And it's really, he says for him, it was the hardest thing in business he's ever had to do. But he felt he had this loyalty that although he was loyal to his friend, and he's naturally a very generous person. You see that his whole, he's so, so generous. And he's so relational. He loves people. But he couldn't do this. This was the way. He couldn't figure out a way to help Scott and also be responsible and take protect his own business so i am kind of mad at scott for putting him in that position and it's not like scott died destitute he still died with over a million dollars he's he's still a rich man but there was a rupture also um in 1874 what i am calling the puddler power grab happens. <laughs> <laughs> this is my way of trying to make business interesting, which it is <laughs> simply not to me. I, I'm trying here because I figure a listener to a podcast about Andrew Carnegie must want to know something about his business practices. But I mean, this is just like talk to me about Louise all day. This part's not my fave. So... The puddlers were men who ran the furnaces to make the pig iron into cast iron. And their job was to stir these, like, vats of lava. This is what I'm imagining. Or to stir the furnaces, in any case. Molten. I don't know if it was molten or if they were stirring the furnaces. I think they're stirring furnaces. Stirring something. The important part is their names were puddlers. Yes. Which is awesome. Yes. It makes me think of Puddle Glum in Narnia. And I just... I just love the whole thing. So puddlers. The puddlers <laughs> had all the power because they were skill workers and they would work two to a furnace. And so they one would stir the fire until he was basically collapsing under the heat. And then the other one would spot him, pull him back from the furnace and take over. And it was their job. And they could recognize when the cast iron was cast iron. And they knew when how much to stir the furnace to keep. They could tell what temperature it was. This is a... It's a learned skill. It's a learned skill. They're very powerful, are the puddlers. So they decide they need to go down to an eight-hour shift because this work is hard. Yes. And they cannot be doing it for 12 hours. And they're also paid on a sliding scale. So if the company's making money, their wages are higher. 
Mm-hmm. If the company, the price of the steel, it's the iron and the steel itself is what makes the price go up and down their their wages. Now, they have a bottom floor that they've agreed to in negotiations. They're not going, the company's never going to pay them less than a certain amount right. that the unions all negotiate. Well, the iron factory wanted to lower their the base floor pay. of the pay because of this depression. And the puddlers walk out. And they're locked out for four months. And eventually, maybe longer, I think it was six months, eventually the factory decides they're not fulfilling orders, they need to get the puddlers back in, because you can't just replace them with scabs, because it's a learned skill. So the, the puddlers win, and it's the puddler power grab. And it becomes important later that this has happened. So that's just one of those things. We're going to file away. Yes. This happens in 74... The puddlers win in the union, but they also realized they had a real hard time winning. That was a long lockout. So they right. won, but barely. So they join the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steelworkers Union. And this is a union that's considered very moderate and that Andrew has no problem with. Um, Carnegie has no problem with the amalgamated because they're kind of moderate. They seem to ask for very reasonable things. They kind of respect the management. Like this is in this era of violence Mm -hmm. when it comes to management and labor. Right. I mean, we are talking, you know, newsies. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, we're talking like rough times. Turmoil. There's a lot of turmoil, which Andrew saw as part of the painful but necessary process of evolution that they that we're in this point in time where we're transferring from an agrarian society into this industrial society and yes it is painful it is painful for everybody it's really sad that all of these workers have to have so little that they have to have a cut in wages but it's frankly just part of the process of evolution There's nothing he can really do. And in fact, if he does something to disrupt this process by paying them more than the going rate, if he does that, then he's going to mess up the process of evolution. And then he's really a detriment on society. Oh, dear. So he believes deeply in this. (laughs) This is his religion. This this really is a religiously felt conviction of right, his. Right. And this uh, this whole discussion about labor versus management is where he really has to trust Captain Jones. So remember when he hired Captain Jones to be the superintendent of the plant? This man, Carnegie's really trusting to kind of have his his pulse on the feelings of the workers. So for example, um steel prices in in May of 1878 are at an all-time low. So there's a real possibility that it's just going to be necessary to reduce wages across the board. But Captain Jones writes to Carnegie and says, leave good enough alone. Don't think of any further reductions. Our men are hardworking and faithful, believing that hard pan has been reached. Let them once get the notion in their head that wages are to be further reduced and we will lose heavily. I am or have promised rewards if we accomplish certain output. It looks as if I'm 
aiming at what will be accomplished. So of all things, don't think of reducing wages. Now mark what I tell you. Our labor is the cheapest in the country. Our men have esprit de corps, and our cost of maintenance is way under that of any other works. Low wages does not always imply cheap labor. Good wages and good workmen I know to be the cheapest labor. Our men are taking good care of our property and are pulling with us so heartily that I even can't dream of again attacking them. Carnegie trusts Jones. Right. Jones says, don't lower wages. Carnegie believes him and absolutely abides by his call on that. But he does leave it to Jones to sort of know what is the right thing to do right and jones is not he's not just like pro worker i mean he's really he is management he's Mm -hmm. is trying to but he's trying to actually get the most he's a real believer jones is a real believer in the eight hour work day Mm -hmm. instead of the 12 hour one interesting thing about the steel furnaces is you can't turn them off once they get to a certain temperature there's no putting out those fires and if you do succeed in putting them out it costs so much money and fuel to get them back up to the temperature. Gosh. So you have all these religious figures, you know, writing these enraged letters mm-hmm. that they are working on Sundays and that the furnaces are running on Sundays have to be stoked. And Jones fights back against all these pastors saying, mm-hmm. no, 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 I, I, this is just the way this is just the way right, right. this business works. I've got I've got these furnaces. I have to keep them going. Um, and so. But what Jones sees is that with a 12-hour workday, you have very exhausted men. They make mm-hmm. mistakes. They're not doing their best work. If you cut their workday down to eight hours and have three shifts of men round the clock, then everybody does better and we have better output. It's more efficient to do it this way. Yes. It's also better for the workers. He's really trying to do both things, keep people happy and also be efficient. So he's not weak. He actually considers Carnegie kind of weak on labor issues. He wants Carnegie to hold firm on things that aren't that important because he wants everyone to know that they're still in charge. Yes. They can't just demand anything. In 1883, which is a big year for him. In my notes, I have it bolded and starred and circled. Big year. And I wrote, big year, in capital letters. Yes. A lot of different things happen. He's 49. No. How old well, is if he? he's 44 in 1880, you have, yeah. right? Yes. So we'll do 47. Math. Yeah. See, we can math. Um, one of the things that happens to him, I'm going to hand it over to you, Christina, Because he comes back from a winter abroad. Yes. And finally, Andrew begins to declare his love for Louise. He just, he can't stand it any longer. He knows this is the one and he wants to marry her. And so she agrees. And of course, because, you know, it being 1883, she also faints. (laughs) (laughs) Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? She swooned. I I think it would be she swooned. She did swoon. I mean, and it has been three years in coming. Yes. So yes. she had to have had, there has, I mean, it's interesting that she swooned because you'd think she would kind of know, right. but apparently not. Right. This is not a surprise. However, even though it's three years in coming, we're not even halfway through this courtship because there's still a huge difficulty. Um, Mother Carnegie, Mags, it, she has always said, and, and she would until her dying days, that there is nobody 
good enough to marry my Andra. She was adamant he was not going to marry during her lifetime. And so they had to keep their engagement a secret. And Louise also, um, you know, as, as we know, she was also very um, close to her mother, who was an invalid, and she didn't want to distress her mother and worry her that she wouldn't be there to take care of her. So maybe added like a little bit of a thrill to the romance that they had to keep it secret. Right. So Andrew presents her with a beautiful Tiffany's diamond ring and gorgeous engagement ring, but she can only wear it alone in her room. Right. She doesn't <laughs> wear it anywhere. Never. And she also, I did read... She kind of said this privately once to somebody that Mrs. Carnegie was the most unpleasant woman she had ever met. Yes, she did. And I think she said that after Mrs. Carnegie died, (laughs) when it was safe to say something. Right. She would never would have said it before. But it is interesting that, you know, Andrew had such almost hero worship for his mom. Yes, he did. I mean, she was she was a hero, but I don't think she was a romantic at all. No. (laughs) You know, I wonder if she was previously. I mean, to marry will yeah Carnegie it's the truth maybe she wanted to save him some disappointment because I always wonder and I have in my notes and I've never been able to dig out like what was the attraction Max Carnegie and will like you know yeah how, how did that happen? how did they end up together you I know I mean it's certainly an opposites attract situation but yes. not like in the we fill each other's gaps kind right, of right right so I mean I feel that she would not be the one to talk about Romance, right? And this is either true. she didn't believe in it, or it turned out kind of rough for her in in her own married life, right? So, um, so it's a secret engagement, and this really limits how much time they can spend with each other. So, Andrew, just you know, not to be weird, he keeps up his social life, and which Louise, is yes. like a frenzied pace well everything 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 he does is a frenzy pace absolutely and the social aspect of that so he's just like going to plays and going to operas and riding around the country with all these people and 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 poor louise she almost got an early taste of social media because she got to read all about what he was doing that's true papers he was very followed so she was definitely aware that if he spent time um you know complimenting an actress after a, a theater engagement or hosting a dinner for an opera singer like she heard about it and he was not a ladies man in the sense that he you know he didn't really cat about he was he was a gentleman definitely absolutely he had high moral standards but still at the same time it did sting when he was very enthusiastic about somebody's you know craft or their art right and because he was limited in how much he could say to Louise and even to her personally I mean they were engaged but they weren't they were still very reserved no like if they really really got in an intimate discussion it was usually over a book they had a favorite book that they shared we did talk about that. Yes. And and those those like flowery long quotes that yes. that's kind of how they almost between the lines you would you would get that. That's true. That's true. Um yeah, she actually can't handle the whole Facebook mm-hmm. thing. She can't right. handle reading him about him in society pages and she ends up breaking off their engagement, right? Yes, I she just about six months into it. She's like, this stinks. I, I, you know, I mean, do you even like me? I mean, I think that there's a lot mm-hmm. of insecurity on both sides of this. There is. Equation. I think she's trying to see how am I going to actually fit into your life? You know, as we said before, like she had that vision where she was going to help some young businessman rise up and she's thinking he doesn't need me. He doesn't need me to entertain him. How can I be a help me to someone who 
has everything. How can I, you know, be my own person in a way? So it's, it's, I think one part insecurity and then another part kind of knowing her own worth, because I think that every other woman in New York society at that time would have thrown herself at Andrew and she kind of held herself back and Mm -hmm. thought, I I really want to kind of be part of a partnership and not just like be acquired Right. Like a piece of property. Yeah. And he, he might be the one who's bringing the insecurity to the table. Oh, yes. I mean, he's older. He's white haired, a little bit tubby. Right, right. Very short. He's two inches shorter than her. Very short. People would always say, oh, he looked like a little elf behind the desk or something. Right. He was apparently, even for his height, seemed smaller than even his height, which was already short, like 5'2 or something. So they're definitely still attracted to each other, still mm-hmm. good friends, kind of, but they're not officially engaged anymore. One of the attractions that Andrew did have towards married life and settled life, however, was that he had a longing for a domestic kind of situation. Maybe thinking back to his simple cottage days, he wanted to have an intimate kind of home where he could invite close friends, he could invite authors and poets and musicians and so on and have these really meaningful conversations and kind of like a a chummy, homey atmosphere. And in the meantime, Mother Carnegie had become accustomed to quite the opposite. Like she, I don't think she ever for a minute thought, oh, if only we were back in the cottage in Dumfriesland. Like she wanted to be in the Grand Hotel wearing the fine clothes and have everyone see her. She wanted that, you know, like, look, I made it kind of situation. And so she enjoyed living in in the big hotel and having a very public kind of social circle. So Andrew wanted to have a married home where he could basically relax and be his own man and not have Mother Carnegie maybe over his shoulder, you know, wondering who he's talking to or what he's about now. And Right, right. So he goes back after that. He basically goes back after Louise. You know, they don't have this engagement formally anymore, but they go back after a little bit of back and forth and awkwardness. Many, many letters. Many letters. They decide, okay, we're officially secretly engaged again. (laughs) Officially secretly, yes. It's still not public. Certainly not. But no, they are committed in some way and they're very happy and all of the letters between them are very sappy and kind of gross yeah, they are <laughs> right they're adorable right so in the meantime on the kind of business side of things 83 is a big year for that as well captain jones we talked about he's at the edgar thompson steelworks plant the one on the mahan Oh, darn. I'm so excited to be able to say that word well. Oh. Mahangahila? Is that place? Managahila? I don't know. Managahila. Somewhere. It's the river. Anyway, in Pittsburgh. A river in Pittsburgh. So yeah, Captain yeah, yeah. Jones isn't a river in Pittsburgh. No. He's, <laughs> <laughs> no? he's not in the river no, in okay. Pittsburgh. He's at the plant on the one plant. side of the That's river of I mean. Pittsburgh. Of course. Yes. Okay, so he and Carnegie have certain principles of labor management relations, which is one of them is they push through economic downturns. They do not slow down production. They keep the men employed as long as possible. And that is important because they would like to be running non-union plants primarily. 
one of the big problems with unions is they're fighting for security of their job. They want to keep production steady. So they will Mm -hmm. take orders where they're actually taking a loss, Mm -hmm. making steel products, but not making money in order to continue employing their workers through economic downturns. If you have enough money, you can do that for, you know, a few months or even a year, right? which they do have enough money. Two, the lowest possible cost for materials. And Andrew is kind of obsessed with this. Like he will not pay an iota more than he needs to for this little thing or that little thing. He's just getting the materials at the lowest possible cost. Big principle of his. Oh, of course. I mean, it, that was one of his things that he learned in school when he was asked as a little schoolboy to recite a Bible verse. All he can think of was his mother's quote, which was, watch the pennies and the pounds will take after themselves. Exactly. You know, it, it was just, he knew that if you paid attention to the little things, that the big things would come out. That's right. right. That's right. So number three is related. Never pay labor more than other people are paying the labor. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if he wanted to squeeze the labor for all everything they were worth, but he believed in obeying the market rate for labor as well as for materials. So for skill jobs, you pay what would get you the best workers because that's actually less than you would lose overall if they're bad at their job. Mm -hmm. So you might pay a little bit more, but you're still obeying, even in that context, you're still obeying the market. What the market dictates will be the compensation for the laborers. And there's really no more morality to it than that. You're not really thinking about the workers. You're thinking about obeying the market. And that's the morality of the situation, which is a little narrow. And number four is in order to make up for this low paying, you provide them with lots and lots of amenities to make up for the wages that are too low Mm -hmm. for a really positive life. (laughs) And... They're not a lot lower substantially than other places either. You ha- He is actually obeying the market. He's not trying to undercut labor. I mean, he wants to have the lowest labor, but kind of lowest marginally, not as if he's starving people and other people's workers are living high on the hog. They're all in the same ballpark. Okay, so the Edgar Thompson plant is on the river, and across the river is another plant owned by somebody else. That plant has this poor manager who's in charge, and he fouls everything up. He thinks he can just ignore the union. Since the mill isn't in the city, it won't get support. And so he kind of dares the workers, like, go ahead and strike. Yeah, go ahead and strike. It's not going to work. I'm going to beat you down. Well, they do strike, and the plant has to shut down. It starts to default on its orders. That manager resigns in disgrace, and it's a huge union victory. Uh And the union that won is called the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, which has moved in already Mm -hmm. to the Edgar Thompson, to Carnegie's plant. Well, in this whole kerfuffle, Carnegie ends up buying the plant across the river, which is called the Homestead plant. So now he owns two plants directly across the river from each other. And the Amalgamated Union is feeling pretty baller at this point. They, this was a giant victory for them. So they start moving in even more powerfully into the Edgar Thompson plant that Carnegie already owned. And this is making Captain Jones very upset and very uncomfortable because Captain Jones 
has been so good to those workers. This is Captain Jones's perspective that he's been so good to the workers. He's given them low mortgages on their homes. He's built them new hotels. He's just done so many good things. Why would you bring a union into this plant? We've been so good. So he actually resigns. Carnegie sort of freaks out because <laughs> Captain Jones, he needs him. He's his right-hand man. Right, right. You can't lose a Captain Jones. So he takes the train from New York, 15 hours, calms down, meets with Jones, and talks all kinds of nice talk about the union, how it's really a great place. And the unions really educate the workers and bring them up to speed on true relations between labor and management and he says, I believe the trades union is of great benefit to the men, and it has certainly developed many more able men. As a rule, the more intelligent labor is, the less difficult it is to deal with, if capital only asks for what is fair and just. That being, of course, true. <laughs> if, you know, it's a big if. In a perfect world, yes. Mm-hmm. So... All of a sudden, Carnegie, so Jones is convinced to come back, and Carnegie becomes this hero of labor. Right. A, f- a friend of labor. Yeah. He's a stand-up kind of guy. He is. He's in all the newspapers as this is a great manager of labor. I'm going to give periodic updates on labor versus management. And we're at a starting point where he's kind of the best in the biz for everybody. Everybody thinks he's really remarkable. Yes. He's bridging these gaps and it's great. He does. And I think at this time, what he does that's interesting is that he has some kind of degree of transparency with the um, amalgamated union. He basically just explains to them how much the steel is bringing in, how many workers needed to produce it. And he proved he couldn't pay him anymore. He just showed them that if, you know, on paper, that it made sense that if there that there had to be a wage reduction in order to keep everybody working, himself included. So he's basically a hero for his open management style instead of the old kind of, you know, just do as I say, villain style for reducing their wages. That's right. And that's where we're going to leave it today. We will be back. Um, We're going to jump ahead a couple years, and we will see if Andrew stays a friend to labor or not, and what ends up happening with Louise. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Evan Cresta, for editing and mixing this podcast. And please join us at onceuponalifetimepodcast.com or at our Facebook group. See you next time.